Maya Rudolph and Fred Armisen star in the new Amazon series, Forever. The two of them play a middle-aged married couple named Oscar and June who are in a bit of a rut. Along the way, they find themselves in a situation they never anticipated, and it challenges their thinking about the permanence and the routines of marriage. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes. And on this episode of Pop Culture Happy Hour, we dive into this very curious relationship comedy. Here with me and Stephen in the studio is Glenn Weldon of NPR's Arts Desk. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Linda. And joining us from the New York Times is our friend Aisha Harris. Hi, Aisha. Hi, Linda. It's so good to have you with us. And before we start, we should say that, as we mentioned in the intro, this is a show with an unusual central premise. And we certainly respect the idea that you might not want to know what it is, but there's there's not a lot you can say about the show <laughs> without getting into that premise. That's part of why we waited a week after it dropped to talk about it. So if you don't want to know anything because you want to watch it, that's totally cool. For people in that position, we'll just leave it at Stephen in a spoiler-free sentence. <laughs> did you like it? I really did. The, the show has a lot to say about settling and routines within a relationship. And as such... It can be very melancholy, but it can still be funny. It goes in a lot of surprising directions. Uh, It's run by Alan Yang, so you know you're in very, very good hands. Mm -hmm. I ultimately came away really liking it, though it does have some flaws. All right. How about you, Glenn? Uh, I liked it. It's uneven. And I think, uh, as you mentioned, Stephen, it is Alan Yang from Master of None. It's also Matt Hubbard from 30 Rock. There's a hell of a lot more Master of None than 30 Rock in this. (laughs) There is. Uh, Almost to a fault. I mean, I said back in the day, you can check the tape, something about Master of None was always a little bit too cool for school, a little bit didn't care if you liked it or not, a little distancing. And I felt that here, this Mm -hmm. this humor is very, goes out of its way not to try too hard, which is admirable, but it also kept me at a distance. But yeah, I liked it. Yeah. How about you, Aisha? Did you like it? I really, really liked this. I went into it a little bit hesitant, mainly because I feel like we've seen the story of 30 to 40 somethings who are hipsters, who live a very nice life, but are stuck in a rut in their marriage and are trying to figure out where, like, what to do next. Um, it just reminded me a lot of anything they do, plus brothers have put their hands on in the last like 10 years. Um, yeah. All these other sort of very familiar twee, even mumblecore types of narratives. But Honestly, I I came out of this feeling just so happy that it did so much more than that. And more than anything, it's really about Maya Rudolph. And I'm glad that that is the way it turned out. She has long deserved something like this. And I feel like this is probably like one of her best moments ever on film. Excellent. I am going to be the odd person out here. I did not like it. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, (sighs) Which we will talk about more. I just felt that it was extremely familiar. I felt like the kind of the slow pace that it was going for and using as an effect eventually became an affect. (laughs) And Mm. to me, was affected. I felt eventually like... It was just challenging me to find it boring, and eventually I did find it boring. <laughs> so those are kind of our our gentle thoughts, our gentle spoiler-free thoughts. So at this point, we are going to get into what it's about, so consider yourself warned. We are about to spoil the show. Are you ready? Are you really ready? <laughs> are you ready to go? 
All right, here we go. I should have I should have watched it. <laughs> so by the by the end of the second episode, Oscar and June are both dead, and they're together in the afterlife. They have to figure out basically what a marriage looks like when you really are stuck together permanently, as people always talk about marriage. And even if you are stuck together permanently, you know whether that's even a real thing. They have to navigate kind of these new lives together and individually. Glenn, I'm going to start with you. So. What do you think is the value to this show of having them be dead as Uh, opposed to just a married couple in a rut? Sure. It makes you consider what the difference between intimacy and mere familiarity is Mm -hmm. and uh, how where ruts come from and uh, how the prospect of being with someone, even if you love them very much for the for eternity, is kind of harrowing. And it should be. But I mean... All the world building around the afterlife stuff with the fact that they can take people's thoughts or something from them. They can mm-hmm. they can go to the living people and make them depressed. And maybe that's where depression comes from. And this thing with the fountain, all that stuff, it was asserted with such gravity that something like The Good Place is asserting with a lot of fun, uh, mm-hmm. with, a, with, a, with a real sense of joy. Yeah. There's no joy here. That's kind of the point. The point yeah. here is that there is no joy here. Yeah, and I did find that it was a little bit like, for me, a little bit like how some people felt about Lost, Yeah, where it would be like, there's a polar bear. Surely there's a reason why they're bothering to explain this. And mm-hmm. then you either later do or don't find their explanation for that satisfying. To me, it was like, by the end, I was like, why did we even learn about the fountain? Why did we even learn about the thing where you pinch the people's necks and you suck their energy out or whatever that was supposed to be. I didn't think it did anything with those things. Well, it didn't. And what's intriguing about the show to me was what I think intrigued my Rudolph and Fred Armisen. This is a done in one. This is one season and then it's over. They went to this and they mentioned in a New York Times interview that the notion of playing these characters and then putting them down forever is really appealing to them. And given that, (laughs) what the hell are we doing with the fountain and and all this stuff that doesn't connect to anything? Yeah. And the ending, by the way, is a freaking cop-out, and I call BS on it. Yeah. (laughs) Aisha, I want to hear a little bit more from you, because it sounded like maybe out of everybody that you you even liked it the most. How did you feel about all of that world building that they did in terms of the fountain and the energy sucking and all that? Yeah, I agree that in a way that just felt like unnecessary. It is because they didn't really explain it. At the same time, I look at it as this is another avenue for Maya Rudolph's character to sort of find the joy and I guess not life but in death um, of trying to rediscover who she is and and just do something that she's never done before I think that it sort of is an extension of the ocean side and and I appreciated that part of it one of the things that really bothered me was the young kid the teenager who mm-hmm. um, died in like the 70s and I got what they were trying to do with that where you know he says all of these very inappropriate things that you can't say anymore but he doesn't realize it because he died so young and he's been here for you know 40 years and and the whole PC or however you wanted to define it that sort of nature it felt a little gimmicky and I wasn't completely satisfied with the Fred Armisen sort of his character them bonding together but overall I just think that to me this was really a story about a woman especially trying to you know reassert herself and I will say in the first episode there's a moment where right before Oscar dies where they have a conversation where she's she suggests that maybe she wants to have kids even though he's like what are you talking about like I thought we both agreed we don't want kids and I was worried that it was going to turn into this show about that and the fact that they never return to it, I think, to me, 
I liked that. I liked that it was about more than just them not agreeing on kids. It's about really them not being compatible anymore and trying to figure out how to make the other person happy. Yeah, and which I think is maybe part of the reason why the ending felt like a cop-out to me. Sure. And it, I think it did to Glenn, too. What do you think, Stephen? I do think there's an interesting twist on so many afterlife stories, including The Good Place, which Alan Yang has been a consulting producer on. Um, well, and there are writers here, yes, Joe Mandy, uh, Jen Statsky, who come from The Good Place, who are kind of central to it. And I find it really odd that there are these two, as Glenn was saying, such totally tonally different I appreciate that it's kind of like a different prism through which to view some of the themes of The Good Place. I like the fact that they they basically decide to envision the afterlife as just this extension of where you left off. You're frozen where you were when you died, which is why you have a 17-year-old kid who is still a 17-year-old kid and hasn't really evolved beyond being a 17-year-old kid. Everybody is is frozen in place, and that is a nice stand-in for the stasis that these people have experienced in their lives. It sort of forces them to confront their own ability to experience happiness. I agree that the Maya Rudolph character is absolutely central to the show. I don't think the Fred Armisen character is quite as fully realized. I do appreciate the fact that he gets to play a character who's a little bit more reserved. Often, Fred Armisen can be a very loud actor, mm-hmm. and he's able to be a quieter yeah, but presence. but one of the things that I was thinking when I was watching it was it's like this is Fred Armisen trying to play like a norm core right. kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But because it's Fred Armisen, he still seems really weird. And you keep thinking like <laughs> he's normal, kind of. But then in his like conversations with the kid, it's sort of like, is he a man child? Does he what is going on with this guy? And one of the things that I find shocking, this is to shift gears a little bit. We've gotten this far in this conversation without saying Catherine Keener. And mm-hmm. Catherine Keener plays was, a character plays a character who becomes central to the Maya Rudolph story kind of as a woman that you know is their neighbor in the in the, their house after they die. She's their neighbor. Originally she doesn't like them and then she and Maya Rudolph kind of become friends and start having ghost adventures or something like that. <laughs> but I felt I like the show so much more than you did. But I I felt like she was so wasted in that role. I I just didn't find that character interesting at all. I found her to be every like scruffy sort of like yeah man let's go and like well, she's a voice of regret. This, there's definitely an undercurrent yeah. in this show of you choose a path and then you ha- you have no choice as a living human but to barrel forward. And but that's not true. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, you can't go back in time. Well, no, but you but like you, you you make a choice and you live with that choice. And she's there. She regrets the choices that she made in her life and wants to use the afterlife as a way of redirecting herself. And so she represents a fork in the road and which path Maya Rudolph is going to take with her afterlife. I just I just jived with right. with the approach this show took more. If you see this show as a, an extended tone poem on the, the subject of passivity. <laughs> Never said tone poem. Passivity, right? <laughs> of paths not taken, 
of things left unsaid. Mm-hmm. That's what the, the Catherine Keener character is there to do, is to shake Maya Rudolph's character out of it. Now, I think Maya Rudolph digs a lot deeper than Fred Armisen uh, does in this show. And I think particular episode two, in the aftermath of Oscar's death, she's given some really, like, very funny things to do. That's the funniest the show gets mm-hmm. in, in the aftermath of, of his death. And also some of the most intense, yeah. dramatic things to do. Yeah. Aisha, I want to ask you what you think about the Catherine Keener character and her relationship with Maya Rudolph. Maybe even better than Catherine Keener's character is the episode six, yes, which yep. is really like the s- right. So the standalone episode, which kind of resembles that episode from Master of None, yes. right, uh, in season two. Yeah, right. New York, I love you. Right, right. And so in this one, it's a kind of a standalone episode in which you have Jason Mitchell and Hong Chao who are playing this couple who meet, they're both real estate brokers, and they meet at an open house, and they have, like, this very long conversation the first time they meet, which definitely suggests, like, a sort of before midnight sort of, well, we're going to talk about lots of different things and all that stuff. And eventually, he hits on her, and she says, no, I'm engaged, or I'm going to get married soon. And then over time, we see them keep crossing paths and then it devolves into an affair and then finally they never actually decide to leave their significant others and there's a sense of regret at the end and you notice at the very last moment that Maya Rudolph's character is watching this whole thing happen I thought this was a very lovely if familiar in a way it definitely felt familiar but I also just I I will watch Jason Mitchell in anything right I I watched him in The Shy, which was it was an okay show. Um, but <laughs> he's great in Straight Outta Compton. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's great in Straight Outta Compton, and he was really great in Mudbound. So I will watch him in anything. And I think that you know their chemistry and just the way they talked about things and about you know, there's a funny line where she says, you know, is it wrong for me or is it racist of me to say that black and Asian children are like the cutest and he's like no (laughs) I just I loved that sort of like off the cuff it felt very Alan Yankee in a way and so I thought that that to me was kind of the I think that was the standout episode the episode that worked for me the most as a whole which I guess is funny because my Rudolph and none of the other characters are really in it yeah. So I don't want to like discredit anything I just said before, which is that I really <laughs> love the show. <laughs> but that episode definitely hit me harder than any other one. Well, and to me, it's kind of like I was saying about the Catherine Keener character. Alan Yang has, I think, is, I think, very good at pivoting off of his central story to show you people you haven't seen before, like in that episode of Master of None. And have these people come in as stand-ins, make you feel enormous empathy for them and have them illuminate something about the story that's being told and about the world that they're occupying. I found that episode enormously affecting and powerful. It is my very much my favorite one of the show. To me, that was just an interesting look at like, oh, okay, Alan Yang is the one who does that. Like on Master of None. Mm -hmm. No, that's Mm -hmm. true. I did have a moment when I was watching that. I agree that they're both very good in it. And I agree that there are a lot of really terrific moments in that. I did think that they hit the ending a little bit hard. It was a little on the nose, the ending. I think tried a little hard to explain to you what its moral was. But, you know, my issue with it wasn't that they stepped away from the central characters. Because as you said, when they did that in Master of None, it was wonderful. But to me, when they did it in Master of None, it still felt like the same show, Mm -hmm. except just focused on different people. This felt so tonally different to me. This felt like a short film drama 
you know, with sort of, you know, comedy dialogue, people amusing each other. But ultimately, it felt like drama. It didn't have any of the the kind of droll comedy that I feel like they're trying to imbue the rest of the series with that I don't think is always successful. But I felt like the other risk is when you put people who are really charismatic and interesting in a kind of a standalone episode like that, you risk people reacting like I reacted, which is, I'd rather go watch that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like, <laughs> I'd rather go watch a, a show with those people sure. rather than the people that I'm actually watching. Mm. No, I thought it worked because it is a different take on regret and passivity. It's about these two people uh, don't want to break what they have, and so they stick with it. And that's that's exactly the, the, the point of the show. So it fit in thematically. Tone poem. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm just interested. I'm Glenn's, interest- just, Glenn's just going to keep saying tone poem. Saying tone poem. <laughs> I, I am interested in the thoughts of the thinkers behind this show. Even when the show didn't fully cohere for me, I just was interested. I'm just interested in hearing Alan Yang's thoughts. So even when it didn't necessarily add up, I still appreciated the ambition of it, the dollops of beauty throughout it. I still found myself really engaged by it. Yeah, I appreciate the ambition of it. I think that's fair to say. And I do think it's it's a big swing. And yeah. I, as I always say, I do appreciate a big swing. And I think when people are trying to get their arms around something that's really massive like this, that is always to be saluted. But at the same time, when you come in with a big premise like that, I think you always have to ask the underlying question, would this show be interesting if these people weren't dead? And to me, the answer was not particularly. She is. She is, but they together. I also think it's so tragic that in the first two episodes, they have Kim Whitley as her oh, yeah. best friend. That's who who's wasted on the show. So <laughs> funny. Yeah, she got relegated to black best friend. And I was like, are we really doing this? Yes. Like, she And and it, I thought it was really interesting to see this dynamic between them in the church scene. Yeah. Especially, it, it, was, it was just like, this is weird. I don't know how I feel about it. It's like Maya Rudolph is half black, but like it, it's just playing with this weird dynamic that I don't think was fully explored. And yeah. I, I agree that Kim Whitley is, is totally underused and I would love to see more of her. Yeah. I kind of felt like that second episode is my favorite one in the series. Mm-hmm. And then kind of everything in it goes away. And I thought, <laughs> all right. And then you kind of are traipsing through, I don't know, five more episodes of the two of them and then one episode that has nothing to do with that story or whatever it is. I don't know. Well, I'm the jerk. I think we've established. I think think we have finally reached reached a conclusion. I'm the mean person who didn't like forever, but it is available streaming on Amazon, Fred Armisen, Maya Rudolph, Kim Whitley, Catherine Keener, from a lot of great minds, as we have mentioned. So you can check that out and let us know what you think. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH. When we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? So come right back. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Zoom Video Communications. Video conferencing has changed the way we do business. Meet happy anytime, anywhere with Zoom. Connecting team members across the globe. Imagine seeing up to 49 people on the screen at once in digital video. Share anything, a file, a video, a photo, via desktop, laptop, tablet, or mobile. Visit zoom.us to set up your free account today. And meet happy with Zoom Video Communications. Zoom.us. 
Support for NPR and the following message come from Netflix, presenting the new limited series, Maniac. Emma Stone and Jonah Hill reunite, bringing viewers on a journey through different and unique worlds from the familiar to the fantastic. The two search for human connection in a dystopian society that has left them feeling isolated and alienated. Also starring Justin Theroux, Sally Field, and many more. Maniac, streaming now, only on Netflix. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment. What is making us happy this week? Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week? A big dollop of 80s style synth pop joy called My Mind Makes Noises by a band from Manchester called Pale Waves. It really is 80s. Oh boy. Sure, this isn't from this clueless soundtrack. It's nineties, I know. This is giving me acne. I understand that that your uh, mileage may vary on the sounds of the 80s. This takes to me all the stuff that is irresistible about the best pop music of the 80s and throws away the stuff that's junky and tinny and electric keyboardy. What this album is, is a whole bunch of little pieces of kind of perfect pop song craft. There are a few soggy ballads that I would set aside, but when this thing goes for it, it is to me so winning and so charming and just kind of like the collection of rosé wave jams I I didn't know I was pining for. Mm -hmm. Oh, wonderful. Say it again, band name? Pale Waves. The album is called My Mind Makes Noises out just last week. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week? Uh, Look, the Spider-Man on PS4 game doesn't need any help from me. It's doing great. It's all over social media, and I have played many Spider-Man games on various PlayStations over the years, and this does not differ in in really the mechanics much. It just gets everything absolutely right. Swinging through New York City like your Spider-Man is just fluid and magical. And yes, I haven't really played any of the actual game because I'm just going around collecting, swinging around the city. One of the things that's great about the game is that it is a pretty detailed New York City, so you can kind of land Spidey in the park that I got dumped in in 1995. (laughs) You can take him to, have him walk down Christopher Street. You can take him past the Stonewall Inn. you can have him sit on a pride flag, as it were, so to speak. And you can also, um, like I did this weekend, have him go to the Bethesda Fountain in Central Park and deliver the closing speech from Angels in America. Uh, <laughs> because you can, why would you not? Uh, it's just it's just a lot of fun. That's it's amazing. PS4, uh, Spider-Man game, fantastic, good stuff. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Aisha Harris, what is making you happy this week? Well, in the f- next few months, I'm sure that we'll be talking a lot about the upcoming remake of A Star is Born, which I have not yet seen. But all the talk about it from Toronto and and amongst all the critics and the reviewers has made me revisit one of the, I don't know, I think it's one of the more defining moments of my pop cultural existence, which is Judy Garland performing The Man That Got Away in the 1954 version of A Star is Born. The man that won you has run off and undone you. That great beginning has seen a final inning. Don't know what happened. It's all a crazy game. No more that old time thrill. 
torch song. It is beautiful. It's like peak Judy. It's 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 her vocals are bellowing. Her pain you can feel it dripping from the the screen as you're watching it. And there's just something about watching her perform the song in the movie. She's in like this cobalt blue dress and she's in a nightclub at like after hours practicing with her band and her gestures are wild and Liza Minnelli-ish because of course they are because <laughs> they would Liza be. Minnelli That's is her Gans. daughter. That's <laughs> I'm just reminded of how great of a cinematic moment that is and while I wouldn't necessarily suggest watching the movie to everyone I know because it is very very long and because of some weird stuff that happened with the original film there's parts of it that had to be like recut and there's moments where like the action is not happening on screen and it's it's weird it's a weird cut but i do highly suggest everyone watch her performing the man that got away one of the best songs of the 20th century and she is one of the greatest performers in in of all time so yes <laughs> that's what making me happy this week Thank you very much, Aisha Harris. So what is making me happy this week? While I was in Toronto for the film festival that Aisha mentioned, in addition to the film festival, I saw another thing, which I wrote about for the site. So if you have already read that, then you know about this. Jason Reitman, every year at the Toronto Film Festival, as he used to in L.A. for a long time, does a staged reading of a classic or classic-ish movie script. Uh, Richard E. Grant, who you might know as a fine British actor, was Vernon, the principal. Robert Wall, who uh, is the assistant coach in Bull Durham, as well as many other things. (laughs) There he is. That's where he's been. He is the, the custodian who gives the speech about, you know, you all think that I'm dirt. The most fascinating casting to me was that Jesse Eisenberg played Bender, the Judd Nelson role. You also had Christina Hendricks as Molly Ringwald. You had Belle Powley as Ali Sheedy. You had Aaron Paul as Emilio Estevez. And you had the really uh, wonderful Steve Zissis, who you might know from various projects with the Duplass brothers who were mentioned previously (laughs) on Togetherness. And uh, he plays the Anthony Michael Hall role. But... Jesse Eisenberg makes that bully a totally different bully. And it was so interesting to see something that you are so familiar with sort of turned on its head and you start to think about, oh, this would be the tech version of the bully. This would be Mm, the kind of this would be the aughts or present day version of this bully as opposed to the kind of grunge bully. It is a fascinating flip that I wasn't sure would work. Really fun. And the point is, it is always really good to have an opportunity to look at something that you know really well in a totally different way. It takes a lot of work to fully re-examine something that you're extremely familiar with. And that's what this was. Uh, So I'm going to say Jesse Eisenberg reinventing (laughs) John Bender in a stage reading The Breakfast Club is what's making me happy this week. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can find all of us on Twitter. You can find me at Linda Holmes. You can find Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can find Glenn at G.H. Weldon. You can find Aisha at Crafting My Style. You can find our producer Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy. Our producer Vincent Acovino at V Acovino. And our producer Emeritus and music director Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif. That's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides our in and out music that you are bobbing your head to right now. So thanks to all of you guys for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening. And if you have a second and you are so inclined, do give us a review over on Apple Podcasts. That will help more folks to find the show. We will see you right back here next week. 
Hi, this is Peter Sagel. For 20 years, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me has been making fun of the news with comedians and celebrity guests. We got silly limericks. We got terrible impressions. If you think the news is a joke, wait till you hear our show. New podcast episodes are available every Saturday.